here believes that Jesus' name is powerful. Tower. It's good to see you all this morning. Uh, my name is Ben. If you're new here, we're glad you could be with us today. Uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13 this morning, taking a little detour. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, Acts chapter 13. Um, and as you're turning there, two things I want to bring to your attention. Number one, if you didn't get a chance to get a bulletin on the way in, there are more announcements than those three that you heard. There is a lot going on in our church. Uh, this is kind of a busy season for our church. And one of them that I want to bring to your attention is March 7th. We have a peace rally, which is our justice ministry that we're a part of in our whole county uh, with 25 other churches. And we would love for everyone to be there. You can learn about the justice work that we're doing. It'll be in Winter Haven uh, at Hearst Amy Chapel. And so we would love for you to join us. You can find more info in the bulletin. And the second thing is, uh, right after church, we're having a Q&A, as you heard, about the church plant that we are doing. And that is the reason why uh, we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 this morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Ephesians, but I want to take a quick detour to talk about this uh, theme, this topic of church planting from the book of Acts. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 13, just the first three verses, the first three verses, and uh, we will uh, dig in there. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. I want to tag our text today, giving away our best. Giving away our best. Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your grace to us today. Lord, just as we sang, there is no name that is above your name. There's no name that is as beautiful, as precious, as glorious, as powerful. And so today we're gathered to worship you. We're gathered in your presence. And now as we turn to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, by the power of your spirit, transform our hearts, our minds, our lives, that we might be people who love you more and more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You all may be seated. Have you ever tried uh, General So's chicken? Yeah, if, if you haven't before, let, let me let you in on a secret. It's kind of the most popular Americanized version of a Chinese dish. And uh, it, it's gone viral in the last 30 years or so. It, it has become so popular uh, people are starting to ask, who is General So? Like, where, where did this name come from? And, and it's the kind of thing that keeps you up at night, right? Like, where, who is General So? What, what is this? And in fact, one late night as I was, you know, flipping through the channels or, or the, the things on Netflix, there is a documentary, believe it or not, a documentary on finding General So. I won't ruin it for you. It, it's a fascinating thing that they, they go on this journey to try to find out where did this come from, this, this phenomenon of Americanized Chinese food. And as they travel around the country and they go to international places as well, uh, they're trying to find the story here. 
And they, they are looking for uh, the, the, the story behind how this happened. And when they look for that story, they come across multiple people. And, and one of the scenes is this guy who's, who's in his house. And, and he's in this house full, I mean, just stacks of Chinese takeout menus. It's the strangest thing. They're walking through his house, and he's got stacks on the kitchen. He's got stacks in the dining room. He's got stacks in his closet all over his house. He's clearly got an issue with hoarding, and he's got menus from all over the world, menus in different languages, menus that, that look ornate and, and beautiful, and then some that look super simple, like someone created it in five minutes. And then they've got menus that are large, like poster-sized menus, and then little tiny menus that can fit in your pocket. I mean, some of these are rare collectibles this man has. And as he's going around his house, he's showing these folks his, his different menus that he's collected. I'm watching this documentary, and I'm thinking to myself, this has got to be the strangest thing I've seen all week. I mean, th this is strange. We, we as people, we, we hold on to the strangest things. I mean, don't we? We, we hold on to the strangest things. I mean, maybe for you it's not, uh, it's not Chinese takeout menus. But it might be something else, right? I mean, you hold on to your children, like, you know, they're getting older, and, and you're, you're not ready for them to be launched out into life, and so you're, you're holding on, protecting and guarding, and, and you don't want to let them grow up, because it's scary, right? And you're holding on to your kids. Maybe for other pe people, it's, uh, it's money for you, right? Other people out there, they've got issues with spending. Your issue with money is keeping. It's all about how much can I keep and how much can I save, and, and you're real tight. Like you're, you're, so, uh, you're so good at stewardship that you struggle with giving anything or spending anything. Right? For other folks, it might be uh, you come into the church, and, and this is very strange in churches. This happens all the time. Churches tend to be very territorial. You ever seen that before? And not just about other churches, but even within your own church. You're, you know, this is my church. And, and who are they to, to try to come in and, and do something different in my church and, and to try to influence things? I, I've been here a really long time. Don't they know who I am? Right? And you try to hold and protect and, and you love your church and you love the people and the ministries that you've been a part of. And, and it's so precious to you, you just want to guard it with all that you have. Right? It could be a thousand things. But we hold on to these things and we hold on to the strangest of them. And maybe the strangest of all is to hold on to that mission, the mission of the church. Right, the church is supposed to be this, this highway of grace, and it ends up sometimes being this cul-de-sac of fear. We're just we're afraid. And in the life of the local church, often there's this, this tendency where we're, we're moving towards, we're, we're drifting towards this, this inward focus, where it goes from mission to now I'm maintaining. Right? And don't, don't get me wrong, right? We're, we're all about making disciples and and even in our mission statement, we want to make healthy disciples. We want to make uh, robust and, and holistic and, and think about all of our life and grow deep in the scriptures and understand who God is and serve our community well, right? We, we want to do that and mature in our faith. But at some point, you got to back up and say, are we so inward focused that we miss the outward focus of the mission? Are we missing what God might be doing outside of us? Right? 
How do, we, how do we keep the mission focused outward beyond what's happening in my little world? What I want to look at today is how the mission really moves forward when we give away our best. Right? Mission, it thrives in this risky generosity. Risky generosity. And so how do we become a church of that kind of risky generosity? That's, that's what I want to look at today. We're going to look at the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to see as we look at the church of Antioch how, how they move in that direction. And so if you're taking notes today, uh, the first point I want to look at is the comfort trap. The comfort trap. And now let me give you some background before we dive into the text. The, the city of Antioch was incredible. I mean, you go back and you do some study of just the context and the city in that original time, and, and the city was just north of Israel, and it became known as Antioch the Beautiful. Right? It, it, people described it as these fine buildings with, with beautiful, gorgeous, paved boulevards, and, and there were trees and fountains along the streets. I mean, this was the kind of place that you would think of Hollywood. I mean, it was glamorous, and it was gorgeous, and it had this massive population of over 500,000 people, which in the ancient world was a huge city. And they had large numbers of people from all across the world, Jews and Greeks, Persians, Africans, Asians, all these folks. I mean, the Jewish historian Josephus, he says that this was the third greatest city in all the Roman Empire, right behind Rome and Alexandria, Antioch. This beautiful, diverse, flourishing city. And right in the midst of that, a church is born. And we find out about it in Acts chapter 12. Luke tells us in Acts 12, he says, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number, it means like this multitude, you, you can barely count it, a great number who believed turned to the Lord. In other words, revival broke out in Antioch. Revival, so many people were coming to faith, they, it was getting out of control. They, they didn't know what to do. All, all these people are flooding in to hear about Jesus, and the church is exploding in Antioch, and no one has a clue. I mean, it's, it's chaos in Antioch. And so the Jerusalem church, they hear about what's going on in Antioch, and they're like, all right, we got to help these brothers out. Something, something has to give. And so they send one of their best leaders to go help out at Antioch, and his name is Barnabas. Maybe you heard of Barnabas, and Barnabas gets sent to Antioch. He arrives, and, and Acts says this. When he arrives, this is what it says. He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. He saw the grace of God, and he was glad. In other words, just this incredible experience of God is clearly moving in this place. Marriages are being restored. Addicts are coming to faith. Uh, sinners are, are finding grace. People far from God are now close to him. All these things are happening, and Barnabas starts to get overwhelmed. Barnabas is like, okay, this, this is real. How, how am I going to pastor these people? And so then Barnabas starts to ask for help, and he recruits none other than Saul, who later would become Paul, right? You heard of Paul. Paul, the great apostle who wrote half the New Testament, he comes to help out Barnabas, his friend, and now they've got, listen, they've got two of the greatest leaders in the New Testament running Antioch, Barnabas and Paul. I mean, there's people coming to faith left and right, conversions and, and great leadership, and, and this isn't the end of it, right? There's more, right? They, they are the first cross-cultural church we know of in the New Testament. L listen to the cultures represented in their leadership. 
Which, by the way, sidebar, if you, if you want to see kind of how, how the health of a cross-cultural church is doing, you have to look at the leadership. Not just who's in the pew, but, but who's, who's at the table. And, and listen to what, what's said in, in chapter uh, 13, verse 1. It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, you might have missed it. Let me break it down for you. Listen to this. Barnabas was a Levite from Cyrus. Simeon was called Niger because uh, in Latin that means black, and and so he was from northern Africa. Lucius was from Cyrene, which also was from northern Africa. And then you have Manaean, which was a Roman name. So uh, he was Roman, but he was a close friend of Herod Antipas, who was the governor all right, he, he's got this elite social status hanging out with these people in Antioch. And then, of course, you have Paul, the apostle. I mean, all of these people in leadership at this church in Antioch. It's incredible. I mean, they, they are the, the model of what you might think of a cross-cultural church here in the New Testament. I mean, if there was a denominational website or magazine, they they would have published the cover story and said, this is how Antioch did it, and here's your seven steps to success, right? They they were the model of everybody. But this comfort made them vulnerable. This success made it dangerous. They were really close to a trap. See, the most dangerous context for mission is comfort. You hear that? The most dangerous context for mission is comfort. I mean, just look at the children of Israel, right? You go all the way back to the Exodus story, and we talked about this last week. You you look at the Exodus story, and, and it's a miracle of miracles that God would deliver his people out of bondage after 400 years in Egypt. And he sends them through the wilderness on the way to their promised land. And along the way, he's making these promises, revealing his covenant to them, all these beautiful things. And then they make it to the promised land. And this is the strange warning that he gives them. After 40 years, this is what he says. Take care, lest you forget me. You're coming into a land flowing with milk and honey, a land with houses that you didn't build and vineyards that you didn't plant. Your families and livestock will multiply. The blessing and favor of God will be in abundance, but don't forget me. You hear that? I mean, that that must have sounded so strange to people who who had been in such poverty and and loss and difficulty for centuries, and then their, their generation for 40 years wandering. They're probably thinking, how could we ever forget you? How could we ever forget you? God, you've brought us out of so much. I look back on my life and I think of what I was and where I am now. There's there's no way that we could ever forget you. But This is is the lie of comfort. The lie of comfort is to deceive us into thinking that we, we are the ones who got us here. Right? The lie of comfort is to make it about me. Listen, success is not, uh, it's not demonic, but, but it is dangerous. It is dangerous. 
In other words, we, we pray for our church and we pray for the people in our church and we, we want to see people thriving and healthy and we want to see people successful and growing in their relationship with God and doing great things in their life and we want to see that and we want to see our church grow both wide and deep and, and all those things. But listen, the danger is you can pat yourself on the back and say, look at what I accomplished or look at what we accomplished. Look at all the things happening. And we can begin to take credit for things that we have no business claiming, right? We forget that it was God who did it. It was God who did the miraculous. It was God who showed up when we had no way. It was, it was God who provided when we had nothing to provide. It was God who cared for me when I didn't want to, to hear from him. It was God. And listen... God is warning, warning his people, take care lest we forget, right? Because when it becomes about us, we, we drift into fear. This is what happens. It's real subtle and it's quiet. It, it doesn't, it's not loud, it's not shouting, there's, there's not something happening that makes it seem real dangerous, but, but it's real subtle. It's this turn in your heart where if, if it was all about me and what I did, and how I was successful or how we were successful, then I have to be the one that maintains it. Or we have to be the ones that maintain it. And so any sort of outside threat now becomes, oh my goodness, we're, we're going to lose it. I'm going to lose it because I've worked so hard to gain this. I've worked so hard to be successful. And if, if this thing is going to attack me, I'm so afraid. You see it? When it becomes about me... What comes out of me is fear. What comes out of me is fear. And it's actually the thing that kills the thing we love. Because now we, we hold on to it, we hold on to it, we hold on to it, and it destroys it. It's a trap. See, comfort is, is this dangerous trap for mission. And so what we see in this text is it flips right? It, there's, there's this way out of that trap. And how do we get out of the trap? Let's look at the way out. This is the second point, the only way out. Look at their strategy. I love this. The church's strategy is right there in verse two. Look at what it says. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Did you catch that? While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. The, the church at Antioch didn't assume that they knew God's will. They didn't assume that, that they knew what God was going to do in their life. And so, I mean, I don't know about you, but often we, we try to make decisions for God, not with God. I mean, I'm guilty, right? You try to make decisions for God, and you never actually asked God. You never actually engaged with God. And so, you know, we, we try to, to, to do these things that we move forward with our life because we assume if it's something I want to do and it's something I like and it's something that we think is a great idea, of course God wants to do it. Of course God thinks like us, right? But that's not what Antioch does. Antioch humbles themselves to say, what does God want to do in our success? What does God want to do? And they begin to fast, and they begin to pray, and they begin to worship. I mean, what if you made decisions like that in your life? But be careful. They, they get an answer that they're not looking for, this, this unexpected answer in verse 2. Look at what it says. 
This is what God says to them. Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Have you ever gotten an answer from God that, that you didn't want to hear? Right? Have you ever prayed about something and then you, you wanted to take it back? Because you're like, you know what? I probably shouldn't have asked about that. I probably shouldn't have mentioned that because I'm not sure this is what I was looking for. I mean, I can imagine Antioch's response when they're praying, they're worshiping, they're fasting, and then God tells them, okay, these are the ones I want you to send out. And they're thinking, Paul and Barnabas? Couldn't we get the guy who's cleaning the trash in the yard over there and he hasn't really done anything? Well, what do you mean? Well, why are we sending out our very best people? These are the rocks in our church. These are the people who carry weight. These are the people who know what they're doing. These are the people who taught us about Jesus. How are we going to send them out? I mean, Saul and Barnabas, they, they represent comfort and stability. There was familiarity, predictability, comfortableness. There was this sense that if we can hold on to them, everything will be all right. And then in the midst of prayer, God says, trust me and send them. Send your very best out and watch. See, every summer, um, our daughters, they, they love to swim a lot. And, and you know, in Florida, it's, it's great. We have lots of friends with pools and they can swim and, and enjoy themselves. And I remember when they were younger, uh, they... they uh, we're learning how to swim and trying to figure out how to be confident in the water and all those kinds of things. And our oldest daughter, she was still learning how to swim, and she wasn't quite confident yet. Uh, but when she had her floaties on, you know the floaties that you on your arms, and now they got this new one that goes across your chest, and it's more like a life vest almost. Uh, but but she would have all kinds of confidence because with her floaties, she was invincible. She could jump in, and she knew she would float, and she can swim, and she lived with such freedom and confidence and boldness. But when you took her floaties off, it, it was completely different. And I remember one day specifically, I was, uh, I was swimming with her, and, and she had her floaties off, and we're trying to get her used to the water without her floaties, and she was standing on the side of the pool, and I'm in the pool, and I'm asking her to jump in, and she looked terrified. She looked terrified, like something terrible was going to happen, and she wasn't sure if she should do it. And, and I just said to her, you know, sweetie, you could jump in. I'll catch you. It's going to be okay. And that didn't seem to faze her at all, right? She, she wasn't sure if I was telling the truth. And yet she paused for a moment. She closed her eyes. She took a deep breath. She bent her knees, and then she jumped. And I caught her, and I remember as soon as she came out of the water, she was surprised, like, you actually caught me. Right? There, there was this sense of, wow, I can, I can trust you. Antioch, in childlike faith, jumps in. And Luke says, listen, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. This is incredible because God, God would use this risk-taking generosity to, to do mighty things. I mean, look, if you go back to the book of Acts, you can see that this is, this is the turning point in the book of Acts. This, this is the beginning of Paul's first 
missionary journey, and Paul would go along and he would share the gospel all across the Mediterranean world, right? The gospel would go to Rome and Ephesus and Galatia and every major city in the empire because they were infiltrating these places because they were bold and risk-taking to say, we're going to go. And it would infiltrate into every community, whether it was poor or it was rich, whether it was Jew or it was Gentile, whether it was slave or free. He was sending the gospel out. All because Antioch said, we'll give our best. We'll give our best. The way out of the comfort trap is to give. It's the only way. Right? The gospel mission gains only by giving. By giving. And so this risk-taking generosity, it, it forces us to trust God. It forces us to say, this is not about me. This is not about what I've accomplished. This is not about what I've done with my abilities and my life and my service to the church and whatever it may be. This is not us. This is God. And it forces us to say, I'm going to let go so that I can trust him. I'm going to let go. In other words, I'm going to put myself in a place where I have no choice but to trust because it is God who's going to catch me. It's God who's going to care for me. It's God who's going to provide for me. It's God who's going to uh, show that he is the one who made this happen in the first place. Because it's his way of working, right? God's way of working is always gaining by losing. And we, we lose ourselves, and we lose our, our status or our place or our comfort, but then we gain so much more. We gain this, this blessing of God, of his presence and his mission and his purpose. And we, we gain this sense that we get to trust him and be a part of what he's doing. And we gain his very kingdom, the joy of him working through us. And so this, this is what's at the heart of our vision for church planting. Right, as we talk about that, I know that that phrase or that terminology may be new to you if you're new to the church or maybe new to a church that talks about church planting. But to plant a church means to start a new church. It means to start a new church that would reach a different group of people from our church, right? And studies have shown throughout history that the, the best way to reach people who are far from God has always been church planting. It's always been starting new works that can share the gospel in either a new location or a new way that can reach people that our church is not reaching. And so our vision for church planting is to say, we want to be a church that, that does that, that sends out our best. And listen, that's always been our vision, right? Strong Tower is coming up on eight years old next month. Hard to believe it's been eight years, but we're almost out of second grade is what I try to tell people. Like we're, we're barely enough to like take care of ourselves a little bit at the, at the lunch table, right? That, that, that's how we're young, but we're also getting into that stage where now we can start thinking about how do we be a part of what we've always believed in, which is church planting. We want to be a church that this is one of many to come. We want to be so generous, so crazy that people will look at us and say, that's just irrational. Yes, through the eyes of fear, but we're going to trust God and we're going to test our faith to say we want to be people who follow his lead with our best, right? Right? We give away not our leftovers, but our best, our best money, our best leaders, our best time, our best energy, all of our best. And that, that's going to look different for everyone, right? I mean, some of us in here, 
Don't, don't have a heart attack, but some of you might pray and go with the church plant. God might be preparing you right now to say, I, I've, I've been praying about this kind of thing, and I, I'm, I'm thinking through how could God use me in my life, and, and he's been preparing you for years maybe. He's, he's been building gifts into you, gifts for children's ministry or evangelism or, or music ministry or whatever it may be, but he's building into you something that you could be somebody that we send out as one of our best. That could be you. For other folks, it might be another church plant down the road. It might never be a church plant. It might be that you are somebody who stays at Strong Tower and you support church plants through your prayers and through your time and through all the different ways that you could be a blessing to what we're doing. But all of us saying we want to be a part of that risk. We want to be a part of, of extending God's kingdom through what he's calling us to do in other places and through other people. And so... This kind of risk-taking, this, this giving away yourself, isn't just how the mission works. It's actually how the gospel works. And this is the last point, the risk of grace, the risk of grace. The Antioch's faith reminds me of Abraham and his faith. If you go back to Genesis 22, God is telling Abraham to do something that seems unthinkable. In Genesis chapter 22, Abraham is told to take your son, this is what he says, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and, and offer him there as a burnt offering. I mean, this is strange. God, first of all, he calls, he calls Isaac Abraham's only son. In other words, you, you might know the story of Abraham, and, and there is another son, Ishmael. And if Ishmael's standing there, he's thinking, wait, what, what about me? And it's not because God had somehow forgot about Ishmael, but God is focusing in on the promise. And Isaac was the son of the promise. Isaac was the one that God said, by this supernatural way, I'm going to carry on this gospel promise through his line. And so he's saying to Abraham, I want you to offer the best. I want you to offer the one that came by supernatural grace. And then he says, I want you to offer him on the altar. What in the world is that? Right? I mean, clearly in the Old Testament, child sacrifices were forbidden. It was sinful. But Abraham hears God say clearly, this is what I want you to do. I mean, it's strange. Abraham must have stepped back and think, this, this is not what it seems. How could God ask me to do this? But yet I, I've heard him. I, I know this is what he said. And so Abraham, without... Knowing all the answers, he steps out in faith because he knew that God knew more than him, and he trusted God would make a way out of no way. Hebrews 11 tells us later, it says that he knew God was able even to raise him from the dead. In other words, Abraham was willing to go as far as God would allow him because he knew that God would always be the one who reigns in life over death, and so he does it. Right? He starts to gather up his stuff. He rises early in the morning, and he, he says, all right, Isaac, get on the back of the donkey. It's a 45-mile ride. Could you imagine 45 miles on the way to sacrifice your child? The time and the, the, the pain and the difficulty. I mean, he just must have been weeping the whole time, thinking, how could God ask me to do this? How is he going to bring me out of this? He's, he must make a way out of no way. He must do something to, to deliver me from this. And so they finally get to Mount Moriah. 
And they gather up all their stuff. They climb the mountain with the fire and the wood. And you could just imagine, again, his, his emotion. And Isaac is wondering, what's wrong with my father? What, why, is, why is this so emotional? It seems like it's just a normal sacrifice. And so as Isaac picks up on what's happening, he asks his father, he says, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, as he's wiping his tears, he says, Son, God will provide for himself the lamb. God will provide for himself the lamb. And Abraham began to build the altar. And as he built the altar, he asked Isaac to come forward and he began to tie the rope around his son and he placed him on the altar. And as he pulls out his knife, he's getting ready to do the unthinkable. And God stops him in his tracks and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham pauses. He looks over to the bush and famously he sees the ram caught in the bush. And this is what he says. He says that my God has provided, and he names the place Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. God had made a way out of no way. God had taken his risky, insane, irrational generosity, his sacrifice that made no sense, and he said, I'm going to make a way out of this way because God showed up surpassing Abraham's risk. This is the same mount that would become the site on which God's temple would be built. And not far from this mount, just outside the city gates, there was a hill called Calvary. And on that hill, God would make his greatest provision. See, God didn't call Antioch or Abraham or us to do anything that he hadn't already done. He would give away his best. He would give away his only son, his beloved son, in whom he was well pleased. From all eternity, God knew that the only way the mission went forward is if he gave his best. Right? Not his leftovers from heaven, not his angels, not his treasures, not his throne, but only his best. And then God takes the risk of grace. He took a risk of grace on people that were too proud for him. He took a risk on people that society had thrown away. He took a risk on people that everyone else had given up on. He took a risk on you and me because we serve a risk-taking God. He sends his only son, Jesus, to take our place. And Jesus, like the ram in the bush, he dies in our place so that we don't die. Right? So that we're not judged, so that we're not sacrificed. The spear in his side was for our sins. The crown of thorns was for our transgressions. The stripes on his back was for our healing. Right? God provided for himself the lamb. That's what he does. We behold this lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world. Because he gave his best. Jesus gives his best for the worst of sinners. He gave his best for our freedom. He gave his best for our future. He gave his best for our joy. He gave his best for the mission. Because that's how the gospel works. And as we close, I, I just want to ask you this. Will, will you give your best? And, and that could be all kinds of things in your life. As God is calling you, you may be in a place where maybe you're far from God and, and the very first step for you is, is not to give your life to some mission that God has called you to or to support what his work is in this world, but your giving 
that you're giving your best is to give yourself. You're giving your best is to say, God, you can have all of me. You can have all of me in my sins, in my failures, in my troubles, in my transgressions, everything I've done, my guilt, my shame. You can have all of it, all my worst and all my best. And God, when you take me, make me into somebody different. Make, make me into somebody who, who trusts you. Make me into somebody who loves you. Make me into someone who knows they're forgiven by you, who's tra- transformed in my life. And as you give all of yourself, as, as you give your best, God turns around and he says, I've already given all of my best. And now I give you my very presence, my very life, so that you can have it forever. This, this is how the gospel works. And that gospel that changes us, the gospel of God giving to us, is the gospel that then turns around and comes from us. And so as we close today, I want to encourage you about this heart of God, this heart of God who's seeking us to give his best that now works in us that we might give. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are amazed that you would offer up yourself that you would be the lamb who was caught, who was bound for us. You were nailed to a cross for us, giving your best, not holding back anything, but leaving heaven to come to earth, to be humiliated from the moment you were born to the moment you took your last breath for us. And yet, this was the only way, the only way to set us free of our bondage to comfort and to greed and to sin was that you gave. That you gave everything. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work that grace into us. That your Holy Spirit might change us into people who have that kind of radical generosity. In Jesus' name, amen.